Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and I'm here with Melanie Klein. Hey, Mel. Hey, Ben. How are you? Good. Y'all might remember Melanie because she has been a guest on this podcast not once, not twice. This will be her third episode on the Invisible Truths podcast. So she's currently the reigning champ. Winning, winning, <laughs> winning. That's right. <laughs> that is right. Um, and and for those that maybe missed the earlier episodes, Mel is an empowerment coach. She does yoga, tantra. She's a sociology and women's studies professor as well, and an author of two books, Yoga Rising and Yoga and Body Image, um, as well as a host of other awesome things. She's done quite a bit in her life already. Uh, and so she's going to bring a wealth of knowledge and insight to the table that I am always excited to engage with. Well, you know, I feel the same way, Ben. I love having conversations with you. I love being back on your podcast. I think it's one of the most compelling podcasts out there right now because you truly have a gift for pulling out really deep, um, sometimes dark and interesting material mm. from your guests, which I don't always see. Sometimes I see, you know, answers that are scripted or I hear things where I feel like it's been canned and said before, but you have really a, a really great talent um, to kind of dig deep and reveal new parts of your guests. So I am always excited to podcast with you because I'm always curious to see what are you going to bring out in me that maybe <laughs> I won't even expect. Amen. Thank you for that. I much appreciate it. Much appreciated. Uh, and so this week is going to be a little bit different in that Melanie and I have not fully agreed on even a topic before we jump in. And so <laughs> we're just going to roll with it, knowing that goodness and wisdom are going to flow forth. Hopefully. So, <laughs> they will. <laughs> they will. Uh, I'll, I'll kick it off here talking about vulnerability. I, on the previous two episodes, I shared with my other guests that I've been mulling over the, this idea that there's a difference between being authentic and being vulnerable. Uh, and you and I may have touched on this as well, but it's something that really struck me because I never thought much about there being a distinction. To me, they were almost interchangeable. But as my counselor presented the idea to me, it occurred to me that while authenticity was a core value of mine, I'm not always uh, opening up in a way that allows me to be vulnerable. Like I can be authentic and still have some of a wall up. Being vulnerable uh, requires me to take more of that wall down and to show parts of myself that, that I maybe am not always comfortable showing or don't want to show. And so I'll just start out by asking you, if you have experienced that distinction in your own life between being authentic or transparent and being vulnerable? And if so, how does that show up for you, if at all? Um, I think that's a great distinction to make. Um, like you, authenticity is something that is really at the core of my belief system and what I think is really important for everyone to cultivate um, in their life, because the more that we can be authentic, the more we can truly share what we have to offer society and we all benefit from that. And yet, yeah, you're right. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be vulnerable all the time. And I, I struggle with that because we've had conversations about when is it 
appropriate? How, how much do we share, right? When is it actually serving? I think sometimes um, there are moments when vulnerability can bleed into an area of oversharing and potentially um, being self-indulgent. Um, yet at the same time, I think there's something beautiful that I've had with many of my teachers is where they are very authentic, they are very rooted in their truth, and as they are teaching or as um, they have been sharing, they have kind of um, allowed me and others to see parts of their narrative, their story, their journey. And there have been times, it is true, I've had teachers who've been actively continuing to work out certain things as they teach. Uh, for me, it's about kind of like managing that flow of sharing and really keeping in mind that element of service. What, what is the intention behind it? What is really not only the intention in sharing, but the intention in terms of what the people who are going to be receiving this information are going to gain. So I think that if we can have authenticity paired with a really conscious and managed flow of vulnerability, there's a lot of beauty in that that I think really maximizes both of those things. But I definitely, definitely feel that we have to err on the side of caution, especially as leaders and teachers about what we're sharing, how much and why. Because sometimes I see posts that feel incredibly self-indulgent and I just, it leaves me wondering, I wonder why this person posted that. Is that really going to be helpful? Um, is that really supposed to be some extension of the authenticity or is this about something else. So it's it's a question that I continue to sort of grapple with. Yeah, and I appreciate that distinction and those thoughts. It's it's something that I grapple with as well, um, especially as it relates to um, people I'm serving, but also people that I would consider peers in service, other creators, other teachers, other healers, um, even as I relate to people that I'm not necessarily you know, ministering to or serving, I often have to ask myself, okay, what is my motivation behind saying this? Or why am I sharing this? Um, and, and more deeply, what personal need or hurt or desire is speaking that I'm not even aware of? Because oftentimes I find that that can be the case, both when I'm giving advice and when I'm just kind of shooting the shit with, with a friend, things that, um, that I'm not consciously aware of can kind of spring up and influence what I say. Uh, and I don't know if it's the technical definition, but I consider that part of my shadow self um, that I'm trying to, to, to get in touch with, to connect with, and to at least understand so that I can then make more informed decisions on what I share and when I share it. What experience have you had engaging with your shadow self and what would you say your relationship is like with your shadow? I, I think it's, I think it's a good one, actually. Um, it's funny, this came up in a conversation yesterday, which is why I was grinning while you were uh, sharing that about yourself. Um, I, I think that it's something that for a long time, there was a sense of shame about it or embarrassment. Um, and then as I grew to really sort of completely accept all parts of me, um, meaning that I, you know, there, I think there was a time where I, I became very, um, there was a sense of empowerment. There was a sense of self-love that was really growing. That was exciting for me. And yet I was really ashamed of um, earlier versions of myself. And I had to come to terms with the fact that to really embrace myself, to accept myself didn't mean only the current version or certain parts of myself, but it meant all the parts of myself and really seeing the younger versions of myself as 
the ones responsible for getting me to a place that I'm very proud of and very pleased to, you know, where I am and who I am. And that resolved a lot of the tension, I think, around um, feeling that they, that I wanted to keep them in the background. And so when I, I think, when I feel like I, I trot them out, if you will, I usually do that when I'm sharing some aspect of my journey that I'm, I like to say, I'm putting in the collective fire in service of those people, that I'm very clear that this is a story or an anecdote that is relating to a larger teaching that I'm trying to impart, and that that will serve as a great way to connect to them on a personal level that will allow, if you will, the lesson, which I'll call the medicine, to be more palatable and to kind of reach deeper aspects of their being. Um, but it's never... I don't just trot it out to to show it or to, I don't know uh, the best way to describe it, um, to make a spectacle of it. I don't do that. I, I'm very cautious of when is it appropriate. And I know at one point I was working with someone who had wanted me to share certain elements of my shadow. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't feel that there's any reason to share that. And it wasn't about, I want to hide that or, um, you know, I'm embarrassed. It was more like that, that, that does there doesn't seem like there's really any point to that at this moment. Uh, when it feels appropriate, perhaps, you know, there are other things that will come out, but it just felt like that was a little bit, that would have been gratuitous sharing that maybe didn't have a purpose. And for me, if it doesn't have a purpose or it doesn't have a container for it, it kind of like just slops out all over the place and can be damaging. So for me, it's like, I have to have a, a very clear in my mind that it's connecting to some you know, point, some teaching, some lessons, some in, insight. And if I don't have that clarity, I won't bring out those shadow parts because I think they could be potentially damaging or potentially triggering if I'm not clear on their purpose. And is that something that you do with peers as well or in, in friendships, romantic relationships, familial relationships, or are there different guidelines that you use to determine when and how to share that, that shadow. Well, look how tricky you are, Ben. <laughs> tricky, tricky. Um, you know, that's a great question. Um, the, in the way that I was just speaking about it, that is as someone who is a public speaker, a writer, a coach, a teacher, a mentor, like if I'm thinking about my leadership positions and roles, that's when those things come in. In terms of friendships, um, and I would even say those include ones that are collegial, depending on the level of intimacy with that particular person. I will share when there is less clarity about why, because usually that is an opportunity for me to have a little bit of mirroring happening. I'm uh, you know, looking to gain a little bit of insight. And so I share that in a really sacred and confidential container to get feedback because I'm always open to learning more and to receiving more information that maybe that I'm missing, but that's not something that I'm going to work out uh, publicly or with folks that are entrusting their own healing or their own journey with me. Um, that is when, you know, I'm constantly moving back and forth between teacher and student, mentor and mentee, coach and the one that's being coached. Um, and that's a firm commitment I've had for, you know, 20 plus years where I realized that as much as I obviously adored learning and being led through the journey. I also simultaneously loved doing that for others as sort of paying back um, 
all of the gifts that I had gotten from that part of the relationship and that I would spend the rest of my life moving back and forth between them. So I'm very comfortable not being the leader. I'm very comfortable in being the student. I'm very comfortable in being the mentee. And so, you know, it's again, being very clear, what is the, the point of this? Am I the one who is steering the ship or I'm the one who is being steered? And so the way that I share is very much um, contingent upon the role that I'm playing and what I'm seeking at that moment. And am I seeking to lead or am I seeking to be led? Am I seeking to help someone cultivate clarity on their own journey or am I seeking my own clarity? Thank you for sharing that. I think uh, it's helpful for people to hear how someone else is processing that distinction because I don't think it's always self-evident. I think about my seminary experience and one of the phrases that a good friend of mine reminded me of over and over uh, whenever I would preach is don't bleed on the people. And I hated it at first, but I have come to love it um, because it's a good reminder for me to, to be intentional about what I'm sharing, why I'm sharing it, and really not to overload folks. I'm someone that once I learn something, I think, oh, surely if everyone else just knew all this knowledge, then they would have the same reaction I do. And so I just wanna like share everything, all the things at once. And that is not helpful for people. Um, and that's not honestly the way I learned either. My learning was incremental and yet I just want to dump it all. Right. You know? <laughs> well, when you said bleeding, it's funny before you even said that I was, the word that was coming to me was like vomiting all over mm-hmm. people. It's, it's, it's a similar thing. Yours is a little more graceful, I suppose. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was thinking about that as well, not to do that. Cause I think the, the shares that I mentioned a little bit earlier that put me off a little bit and give me the pause is when it feels like a little bit of, you know, just bleeding all over the place mm-hmm. or vomiting all over the place. And yet at the same time, you know, I feel like there has really been um, an increase in that kind of content in a lot of spaces of where people who are in leadership positions, et cetera, are just oversharing. And the reason for it is not clear. Uh, it feels a little too self-indulgent. It feels like, oh, you're sharing this because you want to enroll me in something <laughs> or, or, you know, just there, there is a lack of, I guess I would even say authenticity in the share itself, if we're looking at that overlap. And then I have to say, though, there is the other end of the spectrum where there are leaders and, you know, in, in all realms that are sharing a lot of lessons and are sharing a lot of insight but they aren't sharing enough of where did they find these gems themselves. And so it leaves me wondering, is this something that has been intellectualized or just analyzed? Is this something that's just been read? You know, I like to tongue in cheek say that my spiritual insight all, you know, intersects with like street wisdom. That's sort of where mine happened. And that, you know, while that may not be everyone's experience, the point is I really look to leaders in every industry and every field who are very schooled, even if that's informally, about what it is that they're sharing, that they have done, you know, that personal insight, whether it is, you know, reading on their own, whether it's, you know, um, earning certain degrees, certifications, like I'm not going to pretend those things are not important. Okay. I put a lot of value on wisdom that we glean for ourselves for sure but i'm also not going to pretend that you know there should be people who've done all of this self-learning but don't have certain credentials or degrees and they're leading people and yet they're not actually qualified so i think there's it's it's required that we have both because i certainly know that there is an element of privilege around 
how we accumulate information. And so I value all the different places we can get information, but I think there needs to be a balance between them. There needs to be some intersection. And so I get concerned when there are people who are sharing things where it's only been the self-development journey that they've done on their own. And they are going to spaces, for example, like with folks who have maybe clinical eating disorders and they had an eating disorder, but they are not actually certified. And they're talking about healing techniques where I think to myself, I'm a parent, but I'm not a parenting expert. And I'm certainly not going to create, you know, some platform about, I'm going to tell you how to parent. And so that concerns me. I had this experience. I moved through this. So now somehow I'm equipped and qualified to move others through it. I don't, I don't agree with that. I also am concerned when there are people who have purely intellectualized things, let's call it book smart, have been in the academy or have been in the ivory tower or have gone through all these certifications, but they have not had any experience of moving through things on their own. That concerns me as well. And so what I'm also looking for is who are the leaders who really are demonstrating to me that they have knowledge, that they have pursued, that they have gained in a variety of ways, and simultaneously they have done the work themselves. That to me is when we have the ability to share authentically, clearly, and it is in deep service. If we don't really have that intersection, to me it feels like a bunch of bullshit to be quite honest. And it concerns me because these are individuals who are saying, I'm gonna help you on your journey and I take that incredibly seriously in my work. I remember the first time I walked into a classroom, well, a second time actually, because the first day going over the syllabus, you know, the whole thing. And I have a thing, I do not lecture on the first class. I just don't believe in it. Like, I'm like, let's ease into this, all right, people? And so the second, <laughs> yeah. So the second class, and this is what, 17 years ago, I uh, started lecturing. And I always share that one of the most profoundly disturbing things happen. And people are like, what? what were they doing? Were they asking questions, making comments? Were they heckling you? I'm like, no, they were writing notes. They were writing notes. And there was this moment where, you know, I had already cultivated my mindfulness and yoga practices for many years. So, you know, I like to, to a certain degree, I was conscious enough to go, oh, whoa, hold up. They're writing down what I'm saying. Not only are they writing down what I'm saying, they're taking it home and they are studying it. And there was just this moment where I had uh, committed myself, like I will always be transparent in service of the collective when it's appropriate, when I'm not just bleeding all over them, like I won't do that, right? But I'm going to be very transparent. I want them to know who I am. I want them to know my personal biases. I want to speak to them in a way that shows that I have the ability to navigate, you know, many different populations, that all of these parts of who I am are authentic, that I can use a lot of heady words and I can use a lot of curse words. You know, I can interchange them depending on who, who I'm speaking to and what I'm trying to say and what the intention behind it is. And I'm like, I don't want to pretend to only have this one part of me, that I'm only this person or I'm only that. And that was the integration of all of who I've been, all of what I am currently. And so I try to impart that um, intentionally, right? Maybe sometimes <laughs> I've told students and others like, there is a method to the madness. This, this is actually part of the intentional pedagogy, if it's pedagogy or the way that I coach or the way that I podcast or the way that I write is so that there is an appeal to lots of people and they can see the fullness of who I am so that they're, don't, they're not fooled by anything. 
I never want anyone to take what I say as golden or take it as word. My primary intention has been, you know, to raise consciousness and to allow people to engage in their own critical thinking skills. That's really the, the hub of my work, right? And so for me, that requires me to be as honest and truthful and transparent and authentic as possible as long as I'm doing it in service of them. I, I thought about the moment that you stepped into that second class and you were oh, God, lecturing. Yeah. And it occurred to me, as you said, it was 17 years ago, that you were fairly young at the time to be lecturing. And so I'm, I then begin to think about Melanie as a, a woman, a young woman, right? And existing in the world in a, in a patriarchal, uh, potentially oppressive, oppressive society. And I wondered how you have navigated your identity as a woman in those systems with your identity as author, teacher, coach, um, et cetera. What has that navigation been like moving through power systems, trying to, to stake your claim to the power and the authority that you have amidst those that might push back and want to resist that simply uh, on the basis of your biological sex? Um, yeah, so <laughs> that's a big question. And I don't even know if it's a clear question because there's so many pieces, right? Like, yeah. I love that. I, I mean, I know it's a clear question for you. I don't know if it's a clear question for me like because I have five different things that come up, yeah. um, but let's go for it. So yeah, yeah, I was, I was a young woman at the time, which my goodness, not just being a woman, but being a young woman, I remember actually going to my first conference. Um, and when I talk about presentation of self, about the choices we make in terms to influence what others think of us. I remember spending a lot of time considering, do I wear slacks? Do I wear a skirt? Do I wear flats? Do I wear heels? Do I have my hair up, hair down? Do I wear glasses? Do I wear contacts? And, you know, and, and I've had people laugh when I share that. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like there, that I literally spent a couple hours thinking about how am I going to be received mm. at, you know, like 30 years old going to my first sociological conference. And I think I was presenting something, um, a visual sociology project on masculinity. And, you know, it was very unconventional. I was doing visual sociology. So I was using my photography and talking, doing these representations of masculinity from photos I'd taken in Detroit to photos I had taken in, here in Venice, California. And I'm like, I don't even know if they're going to consider this to be worthy research or presentation. And so I had, I don't remember what outfit I wore, but I put a lot of time into it. And I will say that there were certain um, people who, because I was young, because I was blonde, because I was a woman, that they did not take me seriously. It was like, oh, she's just some valley girl <laughs> from California. And yeah, that's partially true, by the way, it is. And I will say like more times than I need to. And yet... Uh, I, I, I would sort of sometimes feel wounded, but it came back to really cultivating my confidence in my twenties. I had done an incredible amount of personal growth work in my twenties. And so this is not to sound cocky in any way, but what I just kept coming back to was like, I'm the shit and I know what I'm doing. Like that was all I needed to remember. Like, I know what I'm doing. I, they may not be clear on what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing. And I also know the impact that I have on my students or the people who read my work. And I have always honestly been more concerned about them than I have about quote superiors. 
I'm here to be a public intellectual. Mm. I want to be, I love the academy. I, I, I have a strong affinity to being in a college classroom, which is ironic because as a student, I hated being there. But I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, love, I love being in that space. There's something about when I walk on a college campus that excites me to no end. I love the whole thing about it. It's just amazing. Mm. I walk through the hallways and I see the posters like, next week, um, Anita Hill's coming to campus and I'll see what the Chicano studies department is doing. And I'm like, God, this is such a vibrant, amazing place. And yet I'm also clear. And I always have been that this cannot only exist here. This has to exist outside of this institution. And so for me, I was always more concerned with how are my students, um, growing? How are my clients growing? How is this um, igniting them? How is this sparking them? And that's always been of a greater interest to me. And so when there were those moments where there was some blatant sexism or ageism, I would make it known that I was aware and that I was going to push against it. But really their narrow-minded sort of white supremacist, patriarchal, ageist, ableist, classist ideas of who belonged where was less important than the diversity of students that were sitting in front of me. Because here in Los Angeles, I've had just so, you know, incredibly diverse array of students yeah. internationally, in terms of class, race, ethnicity, et cetera, languages, like what, what, is, what is being sparked in them? Yeah. And so their their journey and what they were gaining and keep continuing to root in my confidence that my gift has been to kind of facilitate that journey in a group dynamic um, and being very clear on that has helped me not to get sucked into oftentimes what I would call the snake pit of the academy. In fact, I remember one night I was getting ready. I had been teaching for a year. I had taken a quote gap year after my master's before my PhD. And I was completing all my doctoral sort of applications is the time you had to do them by hand. So I had a stack of papers like, and it was like two in the morning. I was listening to the Moulin Rouge soundtrack and I got up and I looked at my roommate and best friend Carla and I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm done. She's like, what do you mean? And I took the whole stack and I threw it in the trash. Wow. She's like, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I'm like, because I go, I will be taken out of the classroom for another three to four years. I will, you know, um, be writing stuff that nobody's going to read probably. And I said, I'm going to be doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so I told my mentors, these two amazing, incredible men who were mentoring me, which was very important as a young woman that I had two male mentors as well. Mm -hmm. And one of them, Dr. DeBose is still Oh my God, he's still my life. He's fantastic. At 70 something, he went to his first 10 day Vipassana sitting, meditation sitting. So that was cool. But I went to both of them and they were so confused. Like, what, what are you doing? And Dr. DeBose, who had also been very active in the civil rights movement, he had gone into the Peace Corps. You know, he had done a lot of work on interracial relationships. And as a black man, he was like, you know, and as part of another marginalized group, he's like, this is really important for you to do, to go through this, and then you can do whatever you want, then you can disrupt, then you can, you know, and I went, yeah, I get that. I totally feel that, but no, I don't have time to do that. He's just like, oh, because I was kind of like seen as the golden child, you know, in the program at the time. And I was like, I I'll write a book, I'll do stuff. I had no clue how I was going to do this. And I'm like, and I will make an impact that way yeah, but what about the security? What about this? I'm like, mm, no. And those things did come to pass. And I've written more than one book, right? And I've 
continued to build my work, but I have to say it took a lot of gumption on my part. I had to keep coming back to what is my intention in terms of how I want to serve? What is my intention in terms of how I want to position myself as a leader and share this information and to really stick to it? Because yeah, there were times where you know, I was like, oh, maybe I should have, maybe I should have gone for that PhD or something. And then like, no, because I wouldn't, I just, I wouldn't have done what I've done. Well, and, and I want to bring us back to something. You said that you had to come back, keep coming back to this idea uh, that quote, I'm the shit, right? And I, I mean, I didn't always feel that way, but yes. <laughs> but, but I love that. Um, I'm wondering if you can ha- talk more about the journey that got you there. You know, because I think mm. I'm sure that was that was quite a journey, and and you probably dipped your toe into it, and then backed off, and then came back. So, for those other young women out there, or women of any age that that may be going through some of those same things, can you help articulate some of your journey for them? Yeah, so I'm going to share another story because again, I love sharing stories in mm-hmm. service of the lesson. I'm thinking about how a couple years earlier, this was right as I was finishing, I think my first degree. And I had some friends over at my house. Um, one, she was here visiting from Colorado, the woman I was living with at the time, and a couple other friends. And then, and then a guy that I had gone to community college with, he was there as well. And they had never really met each other. They were people from different parts of my life coming together. The one thing that they all had in common was obviously knowing me for uh, a vast array of time. And I remember we'd come home from this comedy club we went to, we were sitting there, and all of a sudden, they all started talking a bunch of shit about me, like in a joking manner, but like, yeah, Mel, she's so like pushy. She's controlling. I was like, yeah, yeah, she's this and she's so hard to handle. And they were kind of just like taking the parts about me that they actually kind of think kind of liked that makes me me, but they were talking crap and because it, it was rapport talk for them. It was this bonding moment. And it's funny, my, my one friend who was visiting, she goes, oh, I remember, I'll never forget the mic drop moment. She's like, you just slowly turned around and looked at everybody. She's like, that's why all you motherfuckers are here trying to hang out with me, right? And they were just like, Dang. oh, true. And I was like, <laughs> so why are you all here? Like, you obviously can't get enough. Like, you're here for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it was just that moment, like, I didn't, and, and it was like, you are here because even those things you're saying, yeah, that's totally me. Like I'm a little pushy, I'm a little controlling, I'm a little intense, but I'm also super kind and loving and incredibly generous to my people. And they all knew that, right? And I am loyal AF. I know I've already thrown some curse bombs, but I figured tone it down. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm super, super loyal to to the people that I love. I mean, my God, my mechanic, I've been going to since I was 20 you know, my hairdresser. I know that seems superficial, but like when you're in and I dig you, you are in for freaking life and I will do anything for you. And so I have those other parts that are a little tense, a little fierce, a little maybe (laughs) putting to some people. I'm definitely not everybody's favorite flavor. Okay. But if you like that flavor, it's really, really good. And so I was basically letting them know I knew that they liked it. And I think that's kind of goes to with everything else that those moments that would have maybe made me feel bad or made me feel like there was something wrong with me. I'd gotten to the point where I actually had to look at the evidence around me. It was like, oh, okay, there's this, but yet I have a great diverse array of friends. I have people who like to be with me. I have students who might be a little scared of me sometimes, yet they tell me about how their lives completely change by the end of the semester. And it's not because of me, it's because of the space that I create for them 
to figure out their own thing. And so I had to just keep coming back to the evidence of kind of unhooking from my own self-doubt because I will tell you for sure I have had it. Like I had self-esteem that was so low, so incredibly low. I would not speak in public. I didn't want to be seen. I wouldn't raise my hand in class. I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. And then I don't know, at some point what got unleashed was just my desire to be bigger than the box I had allowed myself to be in. And I know that's not a clear sort of answer of how it happened because sometimes I don't even know it was a series of events, Yeah. but it was just mostly realizing like, I'm really sick and tired of being quiet. I'm really sick and tired of feeling so small and I'm really sick and tired of having it was specifically at that time, men around me who I'll be straight up are less intelligent than me. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, let's strive to have as much confidence as a mediocre white man kind of a situation, (laughs) right? Where I was like, you all really aren't shit, but you think you are. And I was like, I'm not going to be overshadowed by this anymore. Mm. And I want to be more than this idea that I can only be somebody's wife and be, um, be a docent in an art museum because that really was what I thought I was like oh, I better marry this guy he's going to be a lawyer and I won't pursue my own art career I'll just like volunteer at an art museum and that's what I thought I was going to be wow. and um and then it just completely shifted in part because I had dealt with a very emotionally abusive relationship from the time I was 14 on and off till I was 19 mm-hmm. and I just got to the point I'm like I cannot believe I'm letting this freaking loser straight up loser make me feel this way about myself and I then had a lot to unpack and it was a very long journey and there are moments that for sure what happened then still pops up for me and I I get some definitely some trauma responses and yet I'm so much more aware of it and I've moved you know so far beyond that um, further than I ever thought I could that also specifically for me it's been a commitment to other women and young girls of like, hey, you, you're so much more than you think you are. You're so much more than so-and-so has made you believe you are. And it's been my commitment to, you know, for everyone I encounter, but especially I have a you know, soft spot in my heart for young women who are so beautiful, and I don't mean that superficially, who are just so beautiful and brilliant and they don't even see it because they have had other people just diminish who they are. Mm. And it's such a loss for us. It's such a, um, if we think about our social resources, like we're losing a huge um, segment of our social resources when we have anyone believe they are less than who they truly are. And because I came from that, it's really important for me and always has been to get anyone and everyone out of that and into being fully self-actualized for the collective. I love the image of bursting out of the box that can find you. That's, that's just so telling and so um, so powerful. And I, I, you know, as you were talking, the question hit me. I wonder when you got the image of the woman you are now. Like when did when did this become the vision that you were striving to live and do? And and I also wondered if there's a vision for yourself in ten or twenty years, and then what that Mel uh, looks like. You know, I never had a vision of this person. I don't think I could have imagined it was possible, to be quite honest. 
I think what I had were my role models. One of them, I think she must be 90 at the time. And funny, I dreamt about her last night. It's funny yeah. that that's coming up today. But I had her as a, as a role model. I had my uh, two grandmothers as a role model that were really important. So I kind of saw them. Um, but it was a fuzzy, it was a fuzzy vision. I don't, I don't think I really had much clarity at all, which is funny because that's what I guide my clients into is their own clarity. But I certainly, when I was operating on my own in that way, did not have a lot of clarity. I just would have little bits and pieces come in like, oh yeah, I'm going to do a book that is, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't, I don't know if I really believe it, but it came in. And mm. so like, that was kind of like put on my mental vision board, if you will. And other other little things in terms of wanting to offer the space that my mentors had offered me because they really, oh gosh, my God, the space was so incredible. If I think about Pat Allen, the woman I was just mentioning her as a role model. If I think about Dr. DeBose, I remember going into his office crying one day after a class in grad school where I got in a fight with everybody in it. They were talking about like this new men's movement and I was like, God, it sounds like such bullshit. I'm like, so now you have a bunch of like wealthy white men who can take four days off and jump over fires in the woods. And oh my God, they did not like that. And so I remember I, I, I had, you know, the big heavy textbooks and I got up and my, my best friend Sven, who was in the class, he's like, oh shit, there's, oh crap. Right. And I like threw my books down the desk and it was like, made this huge noise. I was like, I came to grad school thinking I was going to be with enlightened people. This is just some bullshit. And I walked out and I was like crying and I go into Dr. DeBose's office. I was like, my God, these people, they're so ignorant. They're so this. And, you know, he, as like I said, a black man who had had a long experience in the movement was like, you know, was like soothing me. And I'm like, oh my God, I must have seemed so unhinged at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and I was. Um, and so my mentors, the space that they created, right, um, allowed me even in a lack of clarity to kind of, since I didn't have my own channeled vision, they were sort of holding the banks of the river mm. for me, if you will, mm. right? In terms of the vision of myself in 10 or 20 years, um, it was funny when you were saying, you know, you know, like a, a fairly young woman at the time and definitely not a young woman now. It's like, I just see myself as a very uh, regal, older woman you know what i mean like just like with a sense of deep calm and purpose where it's already happened over time i'm definitely less volatile than i was at that time i mean there's little bits of that still in there but what's happened is a lot of the i would say especially think about the fires in california right now the kind of just the wildness of those fires the uncontained element of it has gotten to like, it's more of a, a steady burn, like a slow, steady managed burn. Um, and when there are parts that need to be burned in order to avoid going into complete chaos down the line, like I'll do my own self-contained burns, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there's just a steadiness, there's like an evenness to the whole thing. And so now I feel like my power compared to then where it was very, yeah, it was, it was almost like bordering on the edge of like anarchy at the time. Mm -hmm. Like now it's, it's much more managed. It's much more contained. It's a little quieter. And I just see that as I become older, if I like go through the croning process, if you will, I see myself as like the wise old crone, you know, and that doesn't have to prove anything is even more contained. The space that she offers is even wider and bigger. I think of my own 
Tantra teacher talking about, you know, like the power that the earth has. It doesn't have to prove anything. It can just shift a little bit and we can feel the power where um, it's just, it's more subtle, it's more quiet, but actually has greater impact. And so I, I feel that. Such beautiful imagery, man. Yeah, thank you. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, all right. So the final technical question. Did you say a technical question? I meant technically it's the final question. But oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. so you're going to go technical on this now? <laughs> no. We've got the poetry, we've got the imagery, we're right. going to go technical? Okay. As you spoke about the the fire burning wildly and uncontained versus having a contained burn, that deeply resonated with me. I feel like one of the things I'm navigating in my life is trying to to understand how to have contained burns, right? Like like some mm. parts of yourself, parts of your life have to burn off at some point because they're no longer serving you. So how do you do that in a way that is healthy and responsible? <laughs> I love I almost healthy and responsible. <laughs> right? Difficult. But then that got me thinking about burning as a means for healing, right? Because a contained burn in nature is actually required for certain species of vegetation to regrow the following year and to grow back uh, more abundantly. And so uh, in your life, as you, as, you, as you think back to all the, the burns that have taken place, contained, uncontained, whatever has gotten you where you are today and whatever will continue to take you into who you will become, where are you healing? Really broad question. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, you want another podcast episode <laughs> out of this? <laughs> but it, what, the first thing that comes to mind, like as you think about all that is burning or that has recently burned uh, over the last year or two or burns you see coming, like what part of your life are you experiencing healing in at the moment? Oh, that, yeah, that's a big question. I feel like dealing with loneliness is the big one. Mm. Um, I feel that has come up a lot in my life. And yet the feeling of being truly alone is one of the least desirable states I can imagine. <laughs> that is one of the things I've tried to avoid the most because I am an incredibly, uh, again, with my, with my intensity and maybe sometimes when I'm off-putting to people, because I can be sometimes a little brash, a little harsh, but it's, it's, it's always just because I'm being transparent. Yet I'm so super like soft at the same time. Like mm -hmm. I am so, such an emotional creature. I, I, I thrive and desire deep connection. It's very important for me to have emotional connection. It's very important for me to have in-person connection. Uh, it's important for me to have physical touch, which does not mean sexual in nature. It just means physical intimacy is very important. Like I am a cuddler. Okay. Yeah. Um, like, like it's important to just like feel humans. Um, mm -hmm. And so to, to be alone, it's like, oh my gosh, that is like the, the worst thing I can imagine. Yet one of my greatest things that I've had to look at is the concept of being alone and what does lonely mean? Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, even you can be sometimes with people and feel alone. It's oh, like, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be an absence of something, but it's something that I have I think gone round with many, many times over my life. Um, part of that, given that I grew up and lived in different countries with different family members and was, you know, uh, there was sort of com compartmentalization that went on as a result. Um, and as much as it was, it was beneficial, I think that there was a part of me that always like wondered about stability. Uh, even moving to this country, I didn't want to move to this country. I would have preferred staying with my extended family in Germany, which I mean, for someone like me, that was like, 
perfect. Mm -hmm. You had multiple generations living on one property. We had, you know, 15 people on the same, you know, whatever, three acres that we were living on at the time. And then coming to the United States and living in a suburb where like nobody talked to each other, that already was pretty jarring. So I've come back to that theme so many times in my life. And I feel like probably the last two and a half years has been the deepest work I've done around that. And this year specifically, uh, I think I've made the most strides. And when I finally made the commitment of, yeah, I'm just going to go, I'm going to just go in, I'm just going to go into that and, and take a look at it. Right. Because if I don't, you know, I'm going to grapple with this forever and it's going to get more and more uncomfortable and all of those things. And so where I'm at now is being able to have that sense of loneliness come up and not run away from it, to see it and to see it as something, first of all, temporary and to make sure that I'm connecting the way that I need to when I need to, but not as a way to placate or hide anything, um, but it's very genuine. Uh, when I was younger, I definitely did things that were temporary ways of filling in the gap. And now it's like, okay, so having a good conversation, for example, even like having this conversation with you right now, given how I was feeling this morning, it was like, okay, this is great. There's meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. There's connection that is filling one of the needs that I have. And yet it's not superficial and it's also not something it's not like a band-aid it's not a veneer right where I, I sometimes see young people now where you know they'll just swipe left or they you know they get on tinder and it's like oh let me just have a warm body in my bed or something like that and yet it when we look at the statistics it actually increases the level mm-hmm. of loneliness people feel including the time we know that there's statistics and correlations between the time spent online and loneliness. For, so for me, it's about not falling into those traps. Um, it's about having meaningful connections and conversations, not only virtually, like get on the phone with someone and with a friend and have one of those, you know, really authentic, vulnerable conversations where I'm working something out as opposed to, you know, sharing my story to serve yeah. and making sure that I have time with people in person, especially groups. It's very important for me to be in groups, which is why even though you know, I coach one-on-one and have been for a long time, I made sure that I maintained having classes, at least two on the ground classes, because one, not everyone who um, is going to benefit from working with me is going to be able to afford to work with me one-on-one. And I want to make sure that, you know, I'm operating in different ways. And also because the dynamic of what I feel in the classroom, when I have a group of people in person and we're engaging and you can feel that group energy and you can feel that dynamic to me honestly there's nothing that replaces that and so i always say like i can't help but feel freaking great anytime i'm i'm in that environment and so to me that's not trying to placate it's not me trying to push down it's me just looking okay what really is allowing you to feel authentically connected amidst the loneliness that might be there in the same way that one of the most profound books that I read um, by Bell Hooks was Communion, where she's like, we have these really one dimensional sort of concepts of love. And I have a feeling this might be our next podcast, Ben. Um, (laughs) We have these really one dimensional concepts of love. And so I've taught that in my classes about it's primarily romantic heterosexual love and women who grow up with that script, if they don't have 
a romantic partner that fulfills that particular picture oftentimes feel incredibly disappointed. And so, you know, when I started a lot of this, I would say 17 years ago, I was like, okay, I don't necessarily need a romantic partner. Not that that's not important to me, but there's so many other ways that I can be fulfilled. There's so many other ways I can love and in that love, having that connection. Yeah. I, I'm not going to lie. I was definitely thrown off guard when you named uh, loneliness. Not that I had any idea what you were going to say, but of all the things I could have listed out as possible answers, did not see that one coming at all. Really? So, what did you possibly think what would come? I, I have no idea. I wasn't like consciously thinking about it. I just remember my shock registering when I heard you say loneliness. I was like, oh, I guess I didn't expect that. Um, and then, you know, me being totally curious, like, what was it about that one? Just curious. Because I, I feel like it's such a common one. To it is. Degree. It is very common. And maybe that might actually be more of what surprised me because that is, it's one of the areas in my own life that I've been working on. And so it may have just been that um, one of the things I would have named for myself was something you were naming as well. Mm. And that just caught me off guard, I, I guess. I, I don't know. I'll have to think about it more after we're done. So loneliness is something I've been working on because I've, I've noticed the ways that I placate. And because of the way I uh, grew up, especially the first decade of my life, uh, you know, I learned to, to shut down parts of myself. And, and, and there are certain parts of me that kind of stopped growing and stopped developing mm-hmm. the way they should at an early age. And I, I took on responsibility roles much, much sooner than I should have. And so as a result, I've like been growing, but also been really constrained and really bound in, in ways which has meant that when my what what placating my loneliness looks like for me hasn't necessarily been one night stands or anything, but I've recently become aware that even though I'm not doing some of those uh, things that I would have expected for someone my age to have done at some point, I have still found ways to to placate and to put the band aid on, and then they're just now becoming uh, aware for me, right? And so one of the reasons that I think I enjoy having such a, a, a broad variety of friends is because it means that at almost any given moment, there's someone I can reach out to, right? And, and chat with or send a message to, right? And one of the reasons I have historically appreciated um, attention from um, women especially is because it's, it's a reminder that I have some, some value, I think, right? So it speaks to that low self-esteem, which is related, but not necessarily the same thing as loneliness, at mm-hmm. least for me, like they're, they're tangential possibly. And so as I've become aware of that this last year, I have tried to find moments, mindful moments where I just notice it and sit with it and tell myself that, yeah, I feel lonely or yeah, I feel sad. And that's okay. Like I get to feel this way, nothing wrong with it. I don't have to make it go away. I can just feel it and be and I'm cool. And so, so it's really cool to hear someone else name that um, because that's something that I have been learning, I think, really, really consistently over the last six months to a year for myself. Yeah, I love all of that um, and sharing that. And I think the big thing is just that we can feel it and just it can be there. It's not something that we have to hide. You know, people yep. like to feed the emotions that they like um, and and have them last. And so there's the attachment and then, you know, the classic aversion of the ones that we don't. And as you know, uh, in my tradition of meditation, which is Vipassana, Goenka would always say, aversion and attachment will surely bring you misery. And I may have even shared that on a podcast with you already, but you know, everything we're trying to avoid or everything we're trying to hang on to, as opposed to just letting it be the stuff that moves in and out of our life. And if we can allow it to move in and move out, then, you know, 
all that we recognize is it's temporary. And so we don't have to get so agitated by when it shows up because we know that, well, this is, this is not a permanent state, right? I mean, even now, when I think about how I was feeling this morning compared to how I'm feeling now, it's completely different. And I'm sure in an hour I'll feel different and in two hours I'll feel different. And, and letting that be, I think that's a, that's a really important point. And the other thing is, you know, what I've found in the last year in working with my clients is that this has been a theme for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just fascinating to see these trends that, that happen with the people that I serve because I, I am in the unique position where I happen to be around sometimes, you know, in the course of, let's say, I'll call it a semester, hundreds of people. So my clients plus the classes, and there are really interesting you know, waves of consciousness and emotion that, that move through. And so even watching that, it's like, oh, it's just, this is just something that's moving through, not just me, but there's just whatever it is, it's just, it's moving through and, and yeah. seeing that. Not to mention, I think loneliness, as much as some people like to see themselves as an individual or a loner, I mean, research bears it out, whether we're talking Durkheim, who talks about social integration, or George Zimmel, who's talking about the need to have small groups, we as pack animals, we require and desire a sense of deep and meaningful connection in order to make our lives feel like they have some, some purpose, mm. some purpose. And I think that's where spirituality comes in as well. It's like, you know, we are animals that have created religion and a sense of spirituality in part because our brains have the ability to foresee our death. Yeah. Right. And so the idea of seeing that essentially exterminated or extinguished, and being here now, it's like, well, what, what is the point of being here now? And so we've erected all of these pillars of meaning. We've created all of these symbols to make us feel like there is a larger reason aside from, you know, sleeping, eating, reproducing for being on this planet. Um, and so while there's great beauty in that, the shadow side is it brings the, the loneliness and it brings the sense of unfulfillment with it as well. And we as humans get the unique sort of journey to uh, move back and forth between those things. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. Thank you. Beautifully said. So as we're wrapping up here, um, you know, I always like to end each episode with my guests providing a question, a reflection, a practice, something simple that my listeners can do to kind of meditate and incorporate the themes that we've talked about today. And you and I have talked about shadow selves. We've talked about vulnerability versus authenticity, controlled burns. As always, we've covered a, a wide array of topics. And so I'm wondering, especially speaking to, you mentioned that at some point in your life, you had mentors that kind of held and established the banks of your river, even though you didn't know exactly who you were going to become. You didn't have that vision for, of yourself. They held it for you. And so for others that maybe are in, in a state of transition or, or, or likewise don't yet have that vision, do you have advice on either how they can begin to tap into that vision that's internal and or how to find and to figure out who you can trust to help hold that vision on your behalf when you're not able to? Yeah, great question. I think one of the most helpful things is for people to really just tap into the question of what ignites them, what lights them up from the inside out and to kind of, you know, do a mind map on that. What, what comes up, what images, what words, what frequencies, what kind of traits or qualities come up that they can put down and starting to look, what are some of the themes? What are some of the patterns uh, between them? And then to really begin to think about who are the people 
that light them up? Who are the people who are living in a way that excites them, that are already five steps ahead of them, right? That when they are around them, feel, you know, uh, a sense of deep relaxation around them that they can sort of turn to, um, you know, and kind of use as inspiration, but potentially use as a guide as well. And so just some sort of some of that exploratory work which may seem very simple, but it's amazing how many people have not actually done that, right? And it's just kind of to take the time for yourself and tap into the feeling. So not the mental idea of what do I desire or what would be cool or what would be fun, but what actually produces a sense of electricity in the body, right? Where we can feel that on a very visceral level and what's revealed there. And that might actually look a lot different than the mental imagery or the thoughts that we've had up until this, that point about what we want and go a little bit deeper. What does the body share? What does that inner sense of wisdom share through sensation and kind of pictures? Beautiful. And I feel like I've heard a lot of questions and so I'm getting kind of selective with the questions that really excite me. That one's up there. What ignites me? Such a good one. Good. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I, hope, I hope people benefit from it as well. I would love... I would love to hear uh, what people write down. That would be super yes. cool. Absolutely. I'll, I'll find a way to make that happen. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mel, for joining me again this week. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And until we do this again, I'm sure we will. <laughs> it's been great. We already have the next topic. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Let's talk about love. <laughs> All right, Mel. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for listening to episode 20 of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today on this episode, please check out episodes 9 and 10 where Melanie and I discuss power, pleasure, and pain. If you'd like to learn more about Melanie and the work that she does, go to her website, which is linked in the show notes. But for those of you that haven't checked out the show notes yet, it is MelanieCKlein.com. I'm also excited to announce that for anyone interested in utilizing Melanie's services as an empowerment coach, she has agreed to offer those that come to her and reference this podcast an Invisible Truths discount rate, meaning that you will receive her coaching services at a reduced price compared to others that don't go through this podcast. So if you are looking for an empowerment coach, someone to help you improve your mindset and, and to help you remove mental roadblocks to the progress you want to make, I personally recommend Melanie. She's helped me tremendously. She helped me tremendously. And she's agreed to offer a reduced rate for those that reference this podcast when they go to her. So please check her out. As always, if you have not yet done so, please be sure to subscribe so you're notified when new episodes come out and leave us a five-star rating. That way it's easier for other people to find our work. And again, I encourage you to check out my Patreon page. It's only there that you will find videos of me talking with Leonard Matthews, Amanda Thrasher, and soon Melanie Klein about a variety of topics ranging from the greatness of LeBron James to which rom-coms we like and ultimately what we think of the Kardashians' business success. So please go to Patreon, become a member, and you'll get access to those videos plus a bunch of other great perks. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.